Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Wake up this morning to see this bit of news that Estonia became the first country to officially recognize Russia's actions in Ukraine as genocide. Estonia. You would think that a country that's right there on the border, one of the most vulnerable countries in the entire world, would be a little more reddit. These people have so much... I'm, I'm trying not to make a, a testicle comment in the first you know, 60 seconds of the podcast. <laughs> I've obviously already failed. But, I mean, these people have so much courage to be able to stand up against the Russians. And all of the other Western leaders are wringing their hands like, what words should we use? You know, would this be too mean? Would this be too, you know, going too far? I mean, no kudos to Joe Biden for saying it. But uh, the Estonian government being the first uh, to name this as uh, genocide. So we have a lot to talk about today with our guest, uh, newly published author Juliet Kayam, who is director of the Homeland Security Project and the Security and Global Health Project at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. That is really a long title, Juliet. I know. I'm sorry. You could just, I don't know what you can call me, but I'm, I'm yeah. thrilled to be here. Call me what you want. Okay. Okay, analyst for CNN, <laughs> author of the new book, The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in the Age of Disasters. And considering that I feel like every day we wake up and go, so yeah. what's our disaster of the day? It's like, And we, we move from pandemic to revolution to cyber war to fear of nuclear war, like just too fast. I mean, I, I, yeah. we, we've always lived in an age of disasters, right? It just seems like there's more and they, and they come at us more quickly. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it, factually that it is accurate that they're bigger, faster, par partially because of the climate, but some of yeah. it is just the connectivity of our society now that an invasion of Russia into Ukraine will have sort of supply chain reactions in Africa and cyber reactions in the U S and um, and so part of that is just is just there's no such thing as an isolated blip. So what you feel is is actually true. Well, I, I want to get into all of this, but could we do something first? I, yeah. I I posted this on in my newsletter because I think it's been getting so much attention. I think it's valid the attention that's being paid to this Michigan state senator named Mallory McMorrow. I'm assuming that many people who listen to this podcast have heard it. If not, you should take the time to listen to it. I'm going to play a little bit of it. The, the context is important because I, I think that there's been a lot of uncertainty about how to handle the culture wars, particularly the, the escalation in which Republicans have begun really across the board, to accuse Democrats um, and others of being groomers if they oppose things like Florida's gender education bills. Speaking of the speed with which this has moved, it has moved so quickly from sort of the fringes, the kind of thing that you would have gotten from an internet troll five minutes ago, now is coming from uh, the spokesperson for the governor of Florida. And now it's become kind of routine to uh, suggest somehow that if you um, support gay rights or you oppose legislation that would impose gag rules on certain subjects, that you, in fact, are either a pedophile or a supporter of pedophiles or soft on pedophilia. Yeah. And obviously, you can tell that this has gone super mainstream because you had members of the U.S. Senate focusing on the issue of, uh, you know, are you soft on pedophilia during the Supreme Court hearings for you know, KBJ just a few weeks ago? Well, this one state senator in Michigan, Mallory McMorrow, pushed back. She stood up and she went after one of her colleagues who had put out a fundraising letter mm -hmm. accusing her of being a groomer. 
And this has gone viral, and I think it's gone viral for a reason. James Carville, who has warned Democrats against wokeness, actually looked at this and said, you know, this is very effective communications. Let me play about three minutes of this rather extraordinary pushback by this Democratic state senator from Michigan, Mallory McMorrow. I didn't expect to wake up yesterday to the news that the senator from the 22nd district had overnight accused me by name of grooming and sexualizing children in an email fundraising for herself. So I sat on it for a while wondering why me? And then I realized because I am the biggest threat to your hollow, hateful scheme. Because you can't claim that you are targeting marginalized kids in the name of, quote, parental rights if another parent is standing up to say no. So then what? Then you dehumanize and marginalize me. You say that I'm one of them. You say she's a groomer. She supports pedophilia. She wants children to believe that they were responsible for slavery and to feel bad about themselves because they're white. Well, here's a little bit of background about who I really am. Growing up, my family was very active in our church. I sang in the choir. My mom taught CCD. One day, our priest called a meeting with my mom and told her that she was not living up to the church's expectations and that she was disappointing. My mom asked why. Among other reasons, she was told it was because she was divorced and because the priest didn't see her at mass every Sunday. So where was my mom on Sundays? She was at the soup kitchen with me. My mom taught me at a very young age that Christianity and faith was about being part of a community, about recognizing our privilege and blessings and doing what we can to be of service to others, especially people who are marginalized, targeted, and who had less often unfairly. I learned that service was far more important than performative nonsense like being seen in the same pew every Sunday or writing Christian in your Twitter bio and using that as a shield to target and marginalize already marginalized people. I also stand on the shoulders of people like Father Ted Hesburgh, the longtime president of the University of Notre Dame, who was active in the civil rights movement, who recognized his power and privilege as a white man, a faith leader, and the head of an influential and well-respected institution and who saw black people in this country being targeted and discriminated against and beaten and reached out to lock arms with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when he was alive, when it was unpopular and risky and marching alongside them to say, we've got you to offer protection and service and allyship to try to right the wrongs and fix injustice in the world. So who am I? I am a straight, white, Christian, married, suburban mom who knows that the very notion that learning about slavery or redlining or systemic racism somehow means that children are being taught to feel bad or hate themselves because they are white is absolute nonsense. No child alive today is responsible for slavery. No one in this room is responsible for slavery. But each and every single one of us bears responsibility for writing the next chapter of history. Each and every single one of us decides what happens next and how we respond to history and the world around us. So, Juliet, what struck me about this was here is somebody that is not defensive, not trying to deflect. Mm -hmm. And as James Carville says, that was enormously effective as a piece of communication. There's really no comeback to it. And uh, Greg Sargent wrote in the Washington Post, uh, the Carville's endorsement suggests uh, how this McMorrow moment might push the stale wokeness debate in, in a new direction. What was your reaction when you heard that? 
I had the same reaction. A couple things. One is just the lack of outrage. I, I spend a lot of time on Twitter. You do too. It's sort of, yeah. you know, the the reaction is always sort of outrage. And hers was just a very sort of matter of fact delivery, which I think helps in the communication. But she surrounded herself in three things. I think a lot about communication and crisis and, and, uh, which she is under because of what she's been accused of. I mean, the first is, uh, or the first two are, are faith and family. I mean, she really mm-hmm. embraces them. Her first words are, I'm a mother. Uh, and then the story of her own faith and what faith actually means. I thought that's a hard, hard retort, uh, given that I'm sure her activities with the church are probably much, much stronger than the person accusing her of groomings are. And then what I liked about it, I don't know what Carville said in total. I saw some of his clips mm-hmm. was it was about the future. And, and instead of, you know, that, that she's, she's sort of saying, I'm not going to debate long history of our white privilege based on slavery, or whatever. She just talks about the future and that we actually have agency to direct the future. And do you want to be the person who is marginalizing LGBTQ kids, or do you want to be the person who, who accepts them because we are, because our future includes them? And I just loved that part of it. So she wasn't, you know, she wasn't, she wasn't going backwards. So all, all pieces of that, I think made it really effective without the outrage. And I think that's what is important right now. But the outrage was implicit in it. Yes. How dare you accuse me, a Christian you know, suburban straight mother of being a groomer or somehow a pedophile. And it really reduces it to absurdity. You know, it shows yeah. how dishonest and extreme it, it was. And, uh, you know, I, I hope that she is a role model uh, for yeah. people to be able to push back because it is it is extraordinary um, how fast uh, this has developed. And again, this, this is the sort of thing that was uh, confined to the you know, woolier branches of QAnon, as if there were yeah. woolier branches. And now it's become very mainstream. And maybe there's an instinct on the part of people who are targeted by this to, to just roll their eyes or just sort of yes. assume that it speaks for itself. But uh, to push back on it and to make it personal. The other thing that I think is is, is powerful is that, uh, you know, clearly what she's doing is, 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 is saying, you're trying to stereotype me in a certain way and uh, I'm just not going to be having it. Yeah. This line that, well, people who disagree with us, they hate America, they hate God, they are in favor of all of these terrible things. And, and when she defines what she actually stands for, I think that it's helpful. Assuming that anyone is believing, okay, so let's talk about disasters. No, I love that, uh, that I think you're so right and, about, which yeah. I think I think about in terms of, you know, starting with the birther movement and then, you know, Hillary's email is that there is a tendency of for for Democrats to think no one could possibly right, believe right. this. Right. And what we've seen, as you said, with the groomer, is it the groomer movement? I don't even know what it is, but yeah, like yeah. whatever this is, is that these things are moving so quickly that if you don't actually address them, the truth is people do believe it. So the idea that this is all nonsense. I think what she basically did is said, I'm, t- I'm taking this really seriously. Yeah. I'm taking this accusation very seriously. This isn't some internet troll. This is a, I think it's another state senator using it for fundraising. And I really think that's important now because I think we have a tendency to just, uh, you know, think, oh, they, no one can possibly believe that. It's just not true anymore. I mean, people do believe this. Well, it, it also was, it, it didn't come off as defensive. 
No. He didn't come off no. as whiny or defensive. The right has been successful, I think, in yeah. framing the debate. And you need to talk about it in their terms. And and again, she turns it around. No, to your point about the reaction, the kind of no one yeah. is going to believe all this. Every once in a while, I still get people who say, you know, you shouldn't give any oxygen to this. You shouldn't yes. give any attention to this. We should just ignore these people. And that, I think, in retrospect, was our big mistake. That yeah. we did ignore them. We did think that they were fringes so that we could sort of pat them on the head and not confront them. And that was a tremendous mistake. And it, it yeah. does surprise me every time I get that sort of blowback on, on on Twitter, like, well, maybe if we just, you know, closed our eyes and didn't say anything about them, they would go away. Like, right. what world do you think you exactly. live in? How did you think we got yeah. here? <laughs> exactly. No, I mean, it's it's a it's a weird tense. I mean, there's, you know, there's things that are worthy of ignoring because someone's just trying to, you know, to get you to react or whatever. But this is this the groomer movement and, and all things related to it uh, that we're seeing with the critical race and 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 what's happening in Florida with the math textbooks and stuff. I mean, this is this is real. This is impacting people and children and the way they're educated and will have impact for decades if it's not actually addressed and then remedied when the opportunity provides itself. Hey, you, you mentioned the math books in Florida. Yeah. Uh, there's only one real aspect of that story that surprises me because almost nothing surprises me yes, at this exactly. point about what they're doing. I mean, it's like, well, aren't you surprised by the fact that they would ban math books because they are too woke? No, no, I'm not surprised by that at all. This is, you know, Ron DeSantis has made it clear that he will jump in front of any possible culture war issue and, right. you know, make himself the, you know, the, the, the tip of the spear on all that. What surprises me, though, is they have not revealed one example of the inappropriate wokeness of the math books. If you're going to take that step, that dramatic a step, don't you think that you'd have like the whiteboard or the big, you know, the the talking point saying, see, right. this is what they are teaching. And usually they do that. They'll come up with something. Sometimes it's a gotcha. Sometimes it's like, yeah, that is a little bit questionable. The fact that yeah. they haven't come up with anything at all is kind of amazing because they just yeah. make well, themselves look ridiculous. Right. Except, except I have a, a theory that I think is starting to be borne out, which is, you know, so we have a tendency to look at the at the losers, right? The, the, the kids who are denied math textbooks or whatever. I have to say I was on the math team in high school and like <laughs> like the idea that it would be like, you know, in any way woke or sexualized or anything. It was like, it was like the most yeah. boring, you know, boring thing to be a part of, but, um, is, is also look at the winners. So I'm, I, I think the fact that now there's only one textbook company allowable in K through five, like, you know, the, the, the I mean, DeSantos has many things, but he's also highly corrupt. Right. And he, oh, you know, the, I, I, I want to know more about that textbook company, right? Who's the winner? Uh, we always talk about the losers, right? Who's the winner? And the winner seems to be this one textbook company that is, Lo and behold, seems to be the only one that can actually publish books in Florida now. So, so there's there's behind all the of the, all their righteous indignation is absolute monetary corruption. That is that is like Trumpism in a nutshell, right? I mean, this is you know this is Jared Kushner and everyone else. So sometimes I I do worry that I'm excessively cynical, but I, but I think the real problem <laughs> is that I'm some sometimes I'm. I am insufficiently cynical. Exactly. <laughs> um, all right. Let, let's talk about disasters, and and okay. and and, and, we'll, and we'll start with the most uh, timely one: the yeah. the our, our reaction to the pandemic. Uh, latest yeah. development, of course, is the uh, um, 
off again, I'm guessing still off again, mask yeah. mandate. You actually were in an airplane today. Yes, last night. And yeah. what, and, okay, last night. So what did you see? I so mean, it was. I mean, are, are, are people celebrating? Are they in the aisles celebrating lack of masks? No, I mean it was. It was like it was. It was one of those things where you know I I make my individual decisions, and I'm I'm with a kid who's who's old enough to be vaccinated but uh, not boosted, um, mm. and I am fully boosted, and you know I just said we're just going to wear our masks. I'm not going to talk to anyone else. I'm not going to make this into a political thing. So about 60%. So first of all, I live in Boston. So mm -hmm. you're already getting a sort of a, a group of people that are probably more, more cautious or, or, uh, than, than not, I'd say about 60% of the airplane, uh, was fully masked. The, um, uh, the flight attendants were, I, I think they're allowed to, if they, if they want to be. And, uh, and it was pretty mellow. I mean, it was the, my whole, my whole aisle was, was masked. My son had to sit away and his, he had one mm. person next to him who wasn't masked. And that was basically it, no issues in the airport. And yeah, so just make an huh. individual decision but at the stage, which is where I think we are in the pandemic. The flight attendants were wearing the masks? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I was, I, I was surprised. They, yeah. The, yeah. I, you know, they, they basically, if you think what's going to bring down airline travel, it is not that passengers are masked. It is that we have a bunch of sick pilots and flight attendants. And so they, I mean, this is what's happened in the, in the last two years. It was the sickness that kept a lot of planes from flying because they couldn't get crews. And so I think that they probably are making a calculation that it's worth them if they want to be able to fly to stay masked. The way the industry works is, you know, you, you, you have a salary, but you also get paid for, for hours in air. So they have an incentive mm. to be able to stay in air and forever. Uh, forever. I mean, you know, it's, this is the, uh, this would matter. I will tell you a really weird phenomenon. We were in Terminal C in Logan, and I was surprised to hear of an international flight there because they're normally from another terminal. Mm -hmm. So I'm hearing, you know, the jet blue. I'm here in Puerto Rico. I'm hearing the message from the other flight saying fully masked because uh, that's the rules when you land mm -hmm. and the rules of that airline. And so it's just like, here's people all in the same area and half of them are masked and have to be masked on the flight abroad. And then us who are who are given the option. So that's, I mean, that is where, where we are. I think we're sort of, honestly, I've been writing about the pandemic from a non-medical perspective. I'm a planner. I help, you know, institutions and have throughout the COVID think about crisis management and, and planning. So I've, I have helped public and private institutions through all this. So, I mean, I think there's just two issues that we're complaining. One is like, do you really want to judge to say, to undermine the CDC this way? Absolutely not. And so I think if I were the Biden administration, here's what I would do. I would appeal the case on legal grounds. And then because they were likely to waive this requirement, what, in two weeks anyway, then right. go ahead and steer this airplane and go ahead and waive it or, or end, terminate it on your own. And then therefore you can at least protect yourself on the legal argument. But it's a funny how the Biden administration sort of, I think, has been wavering a little bit on this. I guess they finally decided to file suit yesterday, mm -hmm. but their extension was only a few weeks anyway. So it was just, it was odd. It has been on. Yeah. They extended it. And then when the judge threw it out, it was almost as if they were relieved that they saw this as an yeah. opportunity to get out of something. It was like, okay, so we're done with that. There was obviously some behind the scenes pressure. Yeah. They're filing the appeal. I'm guessing that the Biden administration politically does not want to win that appeal, but you make an important exactly. point. The legal precedent is important. I guess my question is, 
if you drop the ban or it takes too long, won't the court just simply punt on this, say that it's moot since there is no ban? Yes. Why should we make a ruling? Right. They'll say it's moot, but they might ask for vacating the lower opinion. At least it's okay. not on the books. Right. I mean, that's what you want, ideally. And I think one of the things I've been I don't even want to compare them. I mean, what the Trump administration did compared to what the Biden administration has successfully done are not even comparable. But one thing that frustrates me, I'm a Democrat. One thing that frustrates me is I think the Biden administration has not gotten sufficient and I'll say it, political credit mm -hmm. as much as public safety credit in really steering us towards this really weird time. I'm willing to admit it's a, in crisis management, this is a really weird time because we generally in disaster management, you have a, you have the thing happen, the bad thing happen, you have a response and then you have a recovery, right? And the, that recovery, think of a hurricane or where you are a blizzard or something that recovery happens when the threat is gone. The, gone. the hurricane has passed, the earthquake is over, the terrorists have been captured or killed. And, and this is just a weird recovery because we're, we're just sort of adapting or managing around a virus that is certainly not as lethal and certainly we are so far been able to protect ourselves in ways that we couldn't in March of 2020. And I think that the Biden administration really has not reaped the benefits of explaining this period, of owning this period. In other words, what you said, they seem sort of passive even on this case and really saying, okay, this is what it looks like, right? This is the, the waves of, of ratcheting up and ratcheting down. And, but we are so much better so much better than we were two years ago, let alone a year ago. And even though the fatality rates are high, lots of COVID restriction proponents will look to the fatality or the number of dead. But what they're not saying is that number obviously includes mostly the unvaccinated, but it also, that number is, while we're all living pretty much give or take, like we did in 2019. And so yeah. you really can't compare the fact that we're, we're still having a thousand dead, although that number is going down too. So, I mean, that's one way to think about how can they better narrate us through what is really a unique period, but one, I'm very, I'm very bullish. I mean, I think, you know, in the absence of finding, uh, in the absence of a variant that's going to not be impacted by the vaccine. I, I think the Biden administration really should get more credit than they are. And yet basically this has ended. Tell me whether you have a different take on this. Right. this the public has just decided that it's over. I mean, it, it, it feels yeah. like everyone is just done with it. The mask wars have ended because people are just tired of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think, I mean, part and of I it... know that there are polls showing that people support it, but I, 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 you know, put yeah. an asterisk on some of that, you know. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, here's like the, what do we want to say, the sort of contradiction or paradox, right, of, of even my ex existence last night, right? In my mind, the pandemic is over because I'm okay. taking a trip with my son, right? So I'm, I'm doing things I didn't even do last year because I was being very cautious for the family. And... And yet I'm going to mask, right? Because I know it's not over, right? And I mean, I, and, I, and both things exist in my head, right? You know, I'm going to be both masked, but I'm going to take a trip to the beach. And I think that's probably how most people are, is that they they want to move on. And I think one of the what narratives, I hate saying that word, but I mean, one of the things that the, the Biden administration really could have done, and I think the, the CDC communications have been really bad on this, is, is sort of explaining 
leading us through this sort of it's over, but it's not quite over, period. Here's what you want to do, really focusing on vaccines. Our boosters numbers are horrible, but also how to live again, which I think is right. And I'll tell you, like, for example, one one thing I, I write about in the book is what people want is in a disaster. They want numbers, sort of, you know, what do things look like? How are things, you know, mm-hmm. think of any disaster, how, how much, how many first responders are deployed, but they also want hope, right? So they, I just say, it's, it, crisis communication is easy. It's numbers and hope, right? Here's how it is numbers today and, and here's why it's going to be better tomorrow. And I think where the Biden administration might have guided us through this period better is, is they never gave us metrics about when things got better. So think about the CDC. You know, a lot of their explanation of when things would be lifted or think of even airline masking is, is, is sim- was simply not now. Well, that's not for a public anxious for now. You got to give us some metrics. And is it death rates? Is it infection rates? Whatever it is, got to give us something where we can believe in hope, right? And I think not now has not been a sufficient standard. So you saw the public sort of move faster, I think. And and even Democratic governors, this was not a partisan. Right. Democratic governors move faster bailed, yeah. than the administration. Yeah, because there's, I got to give people hope, right, that, that in March or April or May, things will be different. And that's what you're seeing now. Okay, so let's step back and take a, yeah. sort of this bigger look that you do in the book. Uh, the book is the, the Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters. And I want to talk about that specifically right after this. The weather is getting warmer and it's lighter later. You know what that means. It's time to take those cigars and drinks outside. Time to soak up the feeling and the flavor of cigar season. And when you're getting ready for cigar season, get the best premium cigars at the lowest prices at Famous Smoke Shop and it's stress-free cigar shopping at Famous Smoke because every cigar is guaranteed fresh. Famous Smoke knows how to deliver the authentic cigar shop experience because it's been their family business for 83 years. They have decades of cigar knowledge and a huge selection of premium cigars. Famous Smoke Shop was even named the best place to buy cigars online by Cool Material and Cigar World. Famous Smoke Shop offers a huge selection of more than a thousand brands to choose from. You'll find incredible deals on everyday cigars and highly rated classics included Romeo, E. Giulietta, Monte Cristo, Macanudo, Oliva, and Fuente. So if you want your favorite cigars delivered fast and guaranteed fresh, it has to be Famous Smoke Shop. And, you know, when I got my cigars from Famous Smoke Shop, what I love was, first of all, how easy it was, but also the variety of cigars. Because, you know, you're not always in the mood for the same kind of cigar. And particularly this time of year, you might want to mix it up a bit, which I do pretty much every week. So here's your opportunity to save $10 off of your purchase of $50 or more when you go to famous-smoke.com. That's famous-smoke.com. And use code BULWARK10 at checkout to save $10 off your purchase of $50 or more. You'll get all of your favorite cigars delivered direct from their humidor to yours. That's promo code BULWARK10 for $10 off your purchase at famous-smoke.com. Great cigar deals only at famous-smoke.com. And remember to use promo code BULWARK and the number 10. Okay, we are back with uh, Juliet Kayyem, whose book is The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters. And let's go back to where we started on this. Uh, You write, 
you know, we're not imagining this. We're living in an era of catastrophe. Disasters are not random. They are not uh, rare. Um, and your book, um, you know, talks about uh, the need to plan for the unthinkable and the futility of expecting a trouble-free existence. Yeah. And I, and I guess maybe that's sort of the default setting is that we go, come on, we shouldn't be having these things. So they all come as a surprise. But uh, we're not quite done with the COVID thing. You make an interesting point. You wrote in The Atlantic about this, that Americans never figured out how to respond to all of these coming COVID waves. And this tested us in a different way, didn't it? I mean, that, that yeah. you, you, you wrote that, I mean, ideally, we should have been able to raise our guard as the new wave swept over the country. But in practice, we didn't figure out how to prepare for future waves that come and go, right. that we have to toughen up, then we loosen, then we toughen up. That's not something yeah. that we're very good at, is it? No, no, because we believe in the finish line, right? I mean, this yeah, is right. the, you know, think about it, right? We believe like, I'm okay, done. it's over. Yeah, the white flag, okay, it's over. And, and we talk like that, right? We talk about the the end of COVID or, or you know, the, 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 the build back better, or all these words like sort of have this definitiveness. And so the, the purpose of the book, but it's, 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 it's it, based on my experience in this field and in the public sector and the, and academia and the private sector is, is well, what if we just got the finish line out of our head? Head, right. What if, what yeah. if, what if we live in an age in which we're always prepared for, in my world, we call it the boom, which is just the event that is disruptive. And the boom, I, the book is agnostic as to what bad things happen. It's not a pandemic book. It's not a climate change book. It's not a cyber book. It's not a terrorism book. It's all the above. And then how would you want to structure society or yourself, you know, what we call, uh, left a boom before the bad thing happens and right a boom. And what I wanted to do is, and, and I hope a hopeful way is to say, look, from the Trojan War to, to Surfside, that's my last disaster uh, that I was able to look at, is, is we tend to think of all these disasters as, as, as novel. Think of even like the yeah. novel virus, right? Unique. Oh my God, you know, random, rare, you know, woe is me, all that stuff. Actually, they're sort of consistent lessons that we can learn from them. And I just wanted to draw out those lessons. And the the overall takeaway is we actually can learn to fail safer. We know how to do that. And what I mean by that is if we anticipate, because we can't stop all bad things, if we anticipate the bad thing happening, that failure uh, uh, will if we learn to fail safer, we will minimize harm, minimize death, and be uh, and measure success differently. So I'll say, you know, it, I just I had been the state homeland security advisor in mm -hmm. Massachusetts, so I knew a lot about the Boston Marathon. We have a, it was just happened this week and nine years ago, on Monday, and uh, and so there's one narrative, right? That is that is th three. We failed because the brothers weren't captured before, even though we had hints about them. Three died at the finish line. But the story we don't tell, and, the, and these are the stories of the disasters that I do tell, is, well, what else happened? Well, actually, over 280 people who lost an arm, a leg, a hand, mm. a foot. So we focus on the three who perished at the finish yeah. line. And what the book tries to do is just tell these disasters in a different way, or what are the other stories we're not telling? And and in Massachusetts, there were 280 people over, 280 people were taken to over 30 hospitals. They lost, these weren't minor mm -hmm. harms. I mean, they, these were traumas, a loss of hand, a foot, a, an arm, a leg, sometimes more. And if you made it to a hospital, you did not die. 
right? Think about that. Three died at the finish line. Almost 300 did not die. And it's those stand, it's, it's, it's those stories that I want to tell about, well, why, why, why was, why can I look at that and view that as a success? Well, it's because investments and in all sorts of planning and pivoting and response apparatus that was ready for the boom. And I, and so that's the hopeful side of, of, of looking at disasters historically is actually there's often another story that we don't remember. Fukushima was another one where actually there was a nuclear facility did, that did not radiate, uh, did not release radiation. And I wanted to look at that nuclear facility. What did, how did they fail safely, right? There was an earthquake, there was a tsunami, it got hit. Why did that nuclear facility fail safely? Because that's the lesson I want to learn because uh, that's going to help in the future. See, what's interesting about your book is it's sort of like the dark premise is that you're not going to be able to stop bad things from happening. They're going to happen. That's the bad news. The good news is if you prepare for the inevitability of disaster, uh, you can actually have these successes. And that's a perfect example. I mean, you talk about the companies that didn't anticipate. I mean, Sony didn't anticipate being the victim of a cyber attack. Boeing should have trained its, you know, 737 MAX pilots better. NASA didn't listen. Easiest fix in the world, right? Train the pilots. Yeah. Yeah. NASA didn't listen when a contractor warned about the the Challenger shuttle's uh, O-ring that it it wouldn't hold. But as you point out, the Anagawa nuclear facility near Fukushima, which was hit harder, closer to the epicenter, but was better prepared. And they had an emergency response system to shut the facility down while the Fukushima personnel just watched the water wash over the system. So you really do have a perfect case study of this is what a disaster looks like if you don't prepare, and this is what a disaster looks like if you anticipate it and you get it right. Yes, that's exactly right. And and I mean, part of it was, you know, the his, you know the history of nuclear in Japan, completely dependent on nuclear energy for its for its uh, energy resources. But of course, the history of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so, what what happened was you had an entire nuclear industry built on the complete fallacy and myth, because that was the only way they could deliver, right, without a lot of criticism, of perfectly safe nuclear energy. Well, that's just BS. I mean, we know that, right? And so, well, what if I say, okay, actually, this is a risky industry. How will I fail safer? I'm near, you know, I've I've been warned that there are tsunamis. I've been, I I know that there's going to be earthquakes. And I think a perfect example of that sort of other story is, I hate saying I had fun writing this book, but one (laughs) of the things is I had all these preconceptions that I sort of forced myself to rethink. So think about the Suez closing last year with the Ever Given, right? And so everyone's freaking out and taking pictures of or the, that that famous picture of the of the little bulldozer trying to move the ship. And but when you look back, there was almost negligible disruption to the supply chain. The disruption to the supply chain we're feeling now is is due to other factors. And you think, okay, well that you're closing the Suez Canal, almost 20% of our maritime economy is going through the Suez. How did that happen? Well, if you actually look, they had prepared for failure. The Suez Canal had been closed before during the Yom Kippur and Six-Day War. Uh, they're one of the most fascinating stories of, of adaptation. And the industry, very old industry, is the navigation and maritime industry, had learned to just pivot and go to the Cape of Good Horn in Africa. That's what they did. We didn't tell that story when the Ever Given was stuck because the Ever Given looks, you know, it's more interesting, right? Here's the disaster. Well, how did all these companies adapt? And some chose to stay, some chose to to move, and they basically averted 
a greater crisis than we would have imagined. So, and because they had planned for it and they had all sorts of contingency planning. So I wanted to tell these stories to say, we have agency. That was the most important thing that, that the word disaster comes from dis, which of course means not or, or miss and aster, which is from the stars. And we have this idea of believing that, you know, we're sort of at the, mercy of a misalignment. That's how people thought about mm-hmm. what disasters were, that that they're random and rare and, and, and I have no agency over them. And actually on an individual or institutional or, or public or private sector capacity, we do have agency to, to fail safer. I have to say, I make it clear in the book, I want the people who try to prevent bad things from happening to succeed as much as possible. I want the people who think about resiliency and the future and how we build stronger to be successful. This is the here and now book. This is a book that is about, okay, while they're trying to stop bad things and they're trying to build good things for the future, we are at the moment of boom, as you said, it seems like every day. And I wanted to focus on what I say throughout the book, you are here, right? That we can't always be about the past or the future, that there are things that we can do now. So that's sort of what the book does. And as I said, from the Trojan War to Surfside. Well, it also in, in the piece the New Yorker did about you and, yeah. and the book, you, you talked about how individuals, you know, should think of yes. their personal lives and whether or not they're prepared. You know, do you have a plan? Are you yeah. ready for it? Do you have water? Do you have batteries? Do you have gas in the car? Where are your medications? And I love this. What about the dog? What about the dog? This is funny because, you know, there was a time when, I don't know, I sort of went through the mood where I think, you know, we should be prepared if there's, you know, a, a, you know major outages or what, whatnot, you know, and bought up, you know, certain kinds of food stuff. And then I realized afterwards, what would we do about the dogs? Yeah. Do we have dog yeah. food? Have we figured out how we handle the dogs, how we would transport the dogs? And it's interesting that you mentioned that because this becomes a huge issue Every time something's happening, you know, with Ukraine, you're seeing this, you know, are you able to enter the country with your dog? What do you do with your pet? And that's, you know, for some of us, that's not inconsequential. It absolutely is not. There's an order. I know. I'm glad you say that because it is, I mean, people sort of forget these, these things that will matter to them. So you always hear about like, you know, the poor woman who died in the hurricane because she refused to leave because she couldn't find her cat, right? Like you're sort of like, okay, wait, in the scheme of things. So there's an order of priorities. You're going to laugh at this in terms of just in the studies of disaster management or what what people prioritize at at the moment, the disruption occurs. So it's, it's one is, as I write about is, is family unification. That that actually is is your kids. That is how are my kids? People are. So it's, 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 it generally goes kids, pets, spouse in that order. And I I was like, you know, but part of it is most people think that their spouse can take care of themselves. I don't think it's that they're I'm not laughing about that. I am. I'm not laughing about that. Right. Exactly. So people sort of think, well, my spouse can figure things out, but you're always worried about your kids. Exactly. And and then myself, like people are sort of, you know, you don't find that self-centeredness. I mean, whatever we say about COVID and whatever, we tend to focus on the horrible 12 or 13%. I always remind my students, you know, close to now, close to 80% of Americans, they're not boosted, but, you know, have one or two shots. I mean, that we're now at 
you know, there, there is a, a common majority that is thinking about the community and the community around them. And that's actually true in disasters that, that it's, you know, kids, pets, spouse, and then myself, people tend to be much more selfless as we're seeing, as we see all the time in these disasters. So, uh, but family unification, that if I tell people, so how do you want to prepare? I said, you know, if you have, if you have nothing else, if you have no money, no time, although I will say to your listeners, mm-hmm. if people like us, who probably do have the resources and the time don't get prepared, we will be a burden on public safety, which should be focused on those who can't, right? So, I mean, part of it is our responsibility to those who who can't better prepared, but it's, it's always family unification. It is the only thing that will animate you in that moment. So think through what that would look like. Or I grew up in LA, so I have, I'm, I'm used to this with earthquakes. We we had the phone trees and the, we, we planned this out because you were so worried about the big one and there were no cell phones then. So it's just sort of, sometimes it's sort of re-remembering things that we were, that we were used to in terms of growing up. And then in terms of resources, I always make it easy for people. They always go, well, what should I get? And I need, I don't want to be a hoarder. I don't want to be a, you know, one of those weird people. It's like, as I said, in that New Yorker piece, like you don't, there's a difference between paranoid and prepared. And that's, (laughs) and the different, the difference is perfection, right? I am not asking for perfection. I'm just saying, what is going to relieve your stress? What's going to make things easier? So one quick takeaway is water, right? It is, that's the one thing you're going right. to want. It will probably get back up relatively quickly. Uh, so it's one gallon per person per day for three days. That's just the, I just mm-hmm. gave you a handy thing. So I have a family of five, 15 gallons of water. That's all. I can do that in one or two target runs. And that's how I think about it. Because if you make it easy, rather than you have to be ready for every bad thing, it's just sort of, I just want to be ready just in case for anything. Then I've given you now sort of the number, right? That's what you want. And that will, that will ease your stress. If you have specialized medication, the sort of same thing. Well, I'm going to make sure that uh, my dogs listen to this podcast because I think that they're <laughs> going to be uh, very, very encouraged to find out that they are, that they are number two. And, so, and actually, since we don't have any children living in the house, my, my kids right. have all moved away. They would be number one, apparently. So yes, um, this, exactly. this will be very, they, very good news for the dogs. Right. If, as if they didn't know it already, though. That's the and thing with my dog. It. Like, I mean, that is, that is the truth. They just assume it. The, I mean, these yes, are very, exactly. very entitled. The book is <laughs> The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters by Juliet Kayam, uh, who is also an analyst on CNN. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Well, I'm absolutely thrilled. I'm a big fan. So thank you so much. And thank you for joining me here each weekday. And also, I want to give a shout out to our Bulwark Plus members who helped underwrite this show and keep everything we do at the Bulwark sustainable. You might think that a Bulwark Plus membership is all about our newsletters like my daily morning shots. But really, Bulwark Plus membership is about a lot more than that. We're building a community of independent-minded, concerned patriots who value democracy and the truth. We make most of what we do free and accessible by everybody because you can't help save democracy from behind a paywall, but we do have some great member-only benefits that I'd like to share with you because in addition to our newsletters, members have commenting privileges and also have access to ad-free versions of this show and all of the podcasts in the Bulwark Network like Sarah Longwell's Focus Group Podcast and Mona Charon's show, Beg to Differ. And there's the Thursday Night Bulwark, a live video broadcast that we host for members each week on Zoom. You can give Bulwark Plus membership a try for the next 30 days for free. Simply go to thebulwark.com slash charlie to claim your free trial today. That's thebulwark.com slash charlie. 
The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.